Welcome back to Friends and Neighbors, a podcast in which I continue a conversation begun by children's television icon Fred Rogers in my PBS documentary, Mr. Rogers and Me. Each week, I talk with friends and neighbors about how they're endeavoring towards depth and simplicity despite an often shallow and complex world. I'm Benjamin Wagner, and today, author Michael Tyler. A few years ago now, I was at my first bat mitzvah. It was actually last week's guests, Ron Lieber's daughter, Talia. We were in Brooklyn. I was in my gray suit, feeling sort of stiff and socially awkward. We were queuing for tables, milling about as a New Orleans-style marching band stopped through, as I recall. Very Ron Lieber. And I saw this couple that was, and there's just no other way to put this, they were styling. They were clearly not New Yorkers, you could tell right away. They wore bright white, orange, and green. These two stood out. They were originals. They were fierce. And they were having a great time chatting and laughing amongst themselves. And so I took a deep breath, shot my hand out in front of me, and introduced myself to today's guest, Michael Tyler. We spent the rest of the afternoon talking and even grabbed coffee. Okay, it was gelato in the Instagram offices the next day. Michael is the author of the Carl Sandburg Literary Award-winning children's book, The Skin You Live In, and half of Ubica Advisors, a leadership and strategy advisory firm. When we spoke a few weeks ago, a thunderstorm was rolling across the Sierra de Guadarrama, echoing through the streets of Madrid, where Michael and his partner were starting their new year. I want to start with growing up where and how and and sort of what was your early experience? What are those early positive memories? You know, the stuff that really opened your eyes. I grew up on the South side of Chicago in a area, a neighborhood called Chatham. So I'm born and bred Chicago native and diehard Chicagoan. And my early life, if you're thinking about positive experiences, because at the time I was born in 1960. So at the time that I was growing up in that area, was when the civil rights movement was transitioning. It was going from the Montgomery bus boycott towards the Civil Rights Act in 64. So a part of my early childhood was strongly imprinted by the movement's impact on everyone around me. Mm -hmm. So I think that, that kids in my era, as we were growing up, preschool age, kindergarten age, early elementary school, elementary school age, we got a different sort of pride indoctrination than kids in other eras and other generations because there was an expectation that was placed upon us that we were going to be the generation who did it Mm. because we were going to get legislation and a country awakening that was going to allow us to do things that nobody else had ever done before. And so my early memory of that was constantly having that toe to me and constantly having that supported and positively reinforced which definitely shaped how I am and how I think and how I see the world today. Who were some of those early heroes for you? No doubt my mother was. Uh, My mother, I wrote a book called Water for the Soul in 2000, 2001. And I wrote it as a collection of life lessons that I was trying to give to my eldest son, who I had been estranged from by divorce. And virtually every lesson in that book came from my mother. She's the greatest teacher I ever had in my entire life. I've always said that there is an intelligence that you measure 
in classrooms and tests. And there's an intelligence that you measure by aptitude of judgment. And the aptitude of judgment intelligence is what's going to serve you more and serve you longer in life. Because I can learn algebra today and forget it tomorrow, but the lessons of life I need for a lifetime. And my mother was the greatest teacher of those life lessons. So she was number one, supported every single thing I wanted to do and made me really believe that there was nothing I couldn't do. Mm. Her first cousin was basically my surrogate father, a man named James Rivers. We called him Jimmy Rivers, who was a Chicago police officer who was on uh, Harold Washington's personal detail when he was mayor. And he was the brightest, most profoundly intellectual, but hysterically funny individual I ever seen and ever been around my entire life. Oh, that's a great combo. It's an unbelievable combination. <laughs> I mean, when I, when I look at today's comics who are celebrated, people like Chris Rock and Dave Chappelle, they had nothing on my cousin. On he Jimmy. just didn't have the opportunity that yeah. these guys have now. But they had nothing on him in terms of his ability to interpret and process what was going on because he was also informed by a different generation. He was a guy who grew up in an apartheid America. And so he had to learn to laugh and to twist things on their end in order to survive them, particularly given the fact that he became a police officer. Yeah, yeah. So he was the individual who really made me believe that I could be a writer. When I was 15 years old, he pulled me to his side one day and told me that I had to take a crazy 15. And I asked him, what was that? And he said that he believed he saw something in me that he did not see in other teenagers my age. And he wanted me to be able to fulfill that as a destiny. And that the only way I could do that was at the end of each day, before I went to bed, to sit down and write for 15 minutes. Wow. And I said to him, write about what? Yeah. He said, that's what you got to figure out. He said, but know this that your eye can see a thousand different pieces of stimulus a second and your brain processes and stores all of that. Hmm. And that's enough to make anybody go crazy. So if you don't write the crazy out of your head, you can't find the same way to your destiny. Hmm. That's why he called it a crazy 15. And so at that age, 15, I started writing 15 minutes every day and I still write every single day, longer than 15 minutes. But that's what started the practice for me. That's remarkable. Michael is unsurprisingly like kismet that that should be something that Jimmy handed to you. The crazy 15. I just, just learned of the Flannery O'Connor quote. I write to read, to understand what I'm thinking in essence. Right. right? <laughs> and that's kind of what you're talking about. That crazy gets it kind of out of your head and you kind of work through it. And I've been so interested lately about what is happening? What's happening in that moment for you? What did he mean? And how did he know that? And how have you come to experience that sort of process? There's a vagary that always surrounds an idea that you think you have clarity on. An example of that would be like this. Many people have come to me and said, Mike, I got a great idea for a movie. And they will describe me a scene. And I will say to them, <laughs> that's a scene. It's not a movie. <laughs> And so ideas pop into our head with tremendous clarity. But when you think about how to write them, mm -hmm. there's so much you have to sift around that in order to discern what it is to develop as a piece of writing. Mm -hmm. And the exercise of doing that on a daily basis with the Crazy 15 taught me how to do that much faster. I got to a point where I didn't have to spend an hour sitting around to think of what to write for 15 minutes. 
it got to the point that the moment I picked up a pen, I could immediately start writing and then it might take me an hour before I stopped. And so that was a very helpful thing. That process for me now is still that way. I can access things much more quickly mm-hmm. because of that exercise. I don't have to waste a lot of time. The only time that I have now that is a delay in terms of writing is me trying to choose which direction to go with something. Yeah. For me, that can oftentimes be a challenge because I have an ability to do something that I didn't find out until I was 32, 33 years old, that this wasn't the way it is for everyone else. And that is, I can literally write paragraph after paragraph, page after page of script in my head Hmm. without putting it down. And I can store it there and keep it there. And two, three days later, go back to it and then pick it up and actually write it out. That's, come on, man. That's bananas. It's a freakish (laughs) thing. And as people grow up, we think that, how we live as a frame of reference for everyone else. Right. So I just simply thought that this is how everybody else right. thought. And so I was completely unaware that I was odd or I was different in this regard. But what happens to me also is I can do that with three or four different things. So there's all that stuff in my head that I got to figure out which one to go for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pro- <laughs> sort of what you prioritize your time on because that becomes right. the premium. Right. I, I also want to add one more individual. Yeah. There was a, a, a fifth grade teacher I had named Mrs. Smalls. And Mrs. Smalls was the first person who told me that I could write as a career, which was an odd thing for me to hear as a fifth grader, because in that era, to pursue writing was not something that African-Americans did. We weren't going to get jobs in newspapers or magazines the way that other people might have had the opportunity to do so. And so we were always told to go for the stable professions, be a policeman, be a firefighter, work in a factory, become a teacher, if anything, an insurance salesman. The notion of me becoming a writer was so far-fetched at that age that it was fantastic enough for me to be seduced by it. If it weren't for Mrs. Smalls, I don't think that the advice I got later in life from, from Jimmy to do the Crazy 15 would have registered in a way that this was an exercise for me to become what I wanted to be. And I just can't help point out an experience I had while you were sharing that to be raised without the, I just gave Maggie, my 11 year old, a hug. She did her first concert choir concert last night. And I, you know, was giving her that and she was terrified about it. Right. And I was like, buddy, you can do anything afterwards. You know, I was giving her that hug, whispering in her. I said, you can do anything and you can be anything you want to be. And that is not, what you're telling me, right? The stable job, the cop, the insurance salesman. So I know that this is obvious, but I just can't not point out that gap, that disparity is unsettling as heck to me. It totally is. And it still goes on. It's a thing that culturally speaking, people of color and people who've been marginalized women have this with respect to a patriarchal society is there's an indoctrination to your own devaluation. And when you feel that you don't feel value to pursue what others are mm-hmm. because you just don't think that for one, it's available to you. And for two, you have it in you to actually achieve it. And I was fortunate enough to have a mother who had the presence of mind coming through the sixties and she was born in 1940s. So she had seen some harsh realities about discrimination and oppression and suppression, but she had the presence of mind to raise my brothers and my sister from a perspective of not what it meant to be, Black, 
or Negro or African-American, not even from the perspective of what it meant to be a Chicagoan or an Illinoisan or an American, but from the perspective of what it meant to be human. Because she said there's no greater dimension that you can put on an individual than Mm. that of being human. Because it's completely encompassing of what everyone in the entire world is, no matter what geography they're in or what culture they're in or what era they've lived in. And so she always shaped us with the magnitude of understanding the magnitude of our own identity. And so I was able to get past that trap that devaluation trap that a lot of people still suffer from. And it was only because I had a mother who instilled my pursuit of an identity focus based upon my humanity and not my ethnicity or my gender or my locale. Right. You talk about devaluation and the place that I experience that is with kind of male violence. And I'm a jaw broken when I was in high school and that stayed with me. You have your jaw wired shut for six weeks, it stays with you. And it was a random act of violence, right? And so I'm just curious what, if any, you know, you're talking about some great positive masculine modeling. I'm wondering if you experienced the converse. I totally did. I experienced it in my own home. I was fortunate enough to have Jimmy Rivers, whose name I can't say enough. Mm. And I was fortunate enough to have other men in my life and different phases and stages of my life who gave me a positive notion of what it meant to have masculinity. But my father was an individual who impacted me profoundly in my life because I spent my entire life trying not to be him. Mm -hmm. My father was an individual who was never really interested in parenting, for one, who was abusive physically and verbally and emotionally and psychologically to my mother in front of his own children. These were things I witnessed growing up. And he was a man who had no loyalties to his family or his own home. And so I saw that in my own home, but I also saw it in my neighborhood. I also saw it in my city. I also experienced it. I had my share of scrapes. I've been attacked. I've actually know what the taste of a gum barrel is because I had one inserted in my mouth. And so I definitely have had experiences, violence, a violation of brutality to the degree that they affected me. They gave me the awareness that there's a tremendous line of human conduct. And to the degree that it extends to the malignant, it also extends to the benevolent. And that I was always trying to move that line towards benevolence because I had seen and experienced the malignant mm-hmm. dimension of it. But it also gave me a fortitude that I could endure such things, courage to go beyond them. I never lived with the fear that many people I know live with because I know what it feels like to be hit and survive it. And I know what it feels like to be hit and survive it physically, mentally, emotionally, psychologically, any way you can think of it. Yeah. And I think that that gave me a strength of character to not fear much of anything. I've always said the only thing I'm afraid of is what I can't see. Mm. And so even though I've had my share of it, unfortunately, I didn't have to grow up in, a, in an era where I was shaped by gunfire, which so many people g- are living with right now. Yeah. But, but I, I've seen blood spill on the street in front of me. I, I've seen people shot in front of me. I've been shot at. And so I know what that's like. But to the extent that it's affected me long term, it gave me a belief that I could survive and endure just about anything. 
this idea of, let's just call it toxic or negative masculinity, you know, all the converse of, I was just thinking as you were talking, man, like, what are you, six one, six two? You're a tall man, dude. I'm six three. Right. Okay. So there you go. Right. Yeah. And I'm like six. All right. And I'm not a small man. You're not a small man. And yet, Michael, I walked across a crowded bar mitzvah just and said hello to you. That is the opposite. <laughs> that is the opposite energy. And you came back with twice the energy. That's why we're talking, right? Like, and exactly. that is the opposite of what we're talking about all that aggressive, overly assertive, negative, rageful stuff. So I'm just interested in how you, how you manage that. It sounds like you don't feel like it's much of a management at this point. It's less present for you. No, it's, it's not at all. It's never been a, a part of my identity focus. And that again, goes back to how I was reared by my mother because early on in life, she and Jimmy Rivers, his influence again, talk to me and my brothers, my sister, about how different societies, different generations bring definitions to different people and to gender. And that there was no one way to define any of this, which is the reason why your greatest valuation identity would be to come from not basing your identity on any definition of what it meant to be a man or what it meant to be a woman, but solely what it meant to be human. Right. It was always a click up at a higher level. It was always right. a- Because if I were to do that, then I should be able to get down anywhere in the world. Mm. Because there are people who have gender distinct identities that come from a specific culture and they don't function well in other cultures because it is not supported and magnified and given the dimension in other cultures. And so much of what I saw was what is now called toxic masculinity. And that's a term oftentimes used describing male-female relationships. And as I said, I saw it in my own home. I grew up with men believing that there was a proprietorship that they have, and they still do, with respect to the lives of women and the bodies of women, and that there was a liberty, a reckless liberty that they could have with that. And fortunately for me, because of the mother that I had, I did not grow up seeing women that way. I grew up seeing women as being the individuals who shaped lives, who gave lives. And I can remember also developing a tremendous interest in life sciences when I was 14, 15 years old. And I happened upon the area was called evolutionary biology. I had never even heard of it at that age. And it led me to understand the distinctions between the brains between men and women and how they function differently. And that understanding made me believe and come to a comprehension that these differences didn't mean lesser or better. They just meant different. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that we could capitalize on them being better for both if we understood and respected those differences. And so that's how I grew up thinking that way. The most important people in my life growing up were women. They were not men. So my masculinity, to the degree that you can describe it as such, was shaped more by women than it was by men. I realized only recently that I always talk about my parents' divorce as a key trauma, <laughs> but I never said until a couple of weeks ago, oh, you know what? Moving a thousand miles away from my father or being moved, that probably wasn't a strong play either <laughs> in terms of right. like not wanting to traumatize me long-term. <laughs> right, exactly. But you got through it. Well, yeah. And I love that. I love that. I mean, already you just got me going, well, yeah, well, but 
you endured it. And what does that tell you? Well, shoot, you know, that's just like the whole other side of the coin. It's like a great gift you just gave me with that. <laughs> For real. Well, well, you're a testament to it. You've had your trials and tribulations. And I consider you to be a very positive, well-together, grounded individual. I've had many conversations with you. Oh, thanks. You, you, you don't seem to have had the meteor strikes that life can sometimes give us leave you with craters. It seems like you've had the landfill to get past that. When I think about my early development in life, I look at that as being the hammer and chisel that shapes who we are to become forever. Mm. And that's the reason why those events that happen in life, whether they were good or bad, we are never far away from us. They're never disengaged from who we are. They're always a part of who we are. It's just a matter of what we build on them, if we can build on them, yeah. or how do we augment what was taken away or replace what was taken away. It's, it's all comes to that. But those early years create the foundation. They set up who we're going to be for the rest of our lives. The one thing that helped me out a lot, because I saw a lot of traumas in my life, in my own home, as well as in my own neighborhood, as well as in my own culture. I came through a very tumultuous period of time in America. What really helped me a lot, because I didn't have therapy. That's the, that's the big thing now. We, yeah. we didn't have therapy in my neighborhood. No one was telling you to talk it out. <laughs> yeah, nobody was telling you to talk it out. I didn't sit on a couch. But <laughs> what I had that was very therapeutic for me was my writing. It allowed me to process so much of what was going on around me and so much was going on inside my own head. And that became what enabled me to overcome traumas, to not be defined by them, as well as to embrace those things that were good and great and benevolent in my life and actually use those as the modifier of who I am. Mm. And it was my writing that allowed me to do that. So. I would recommend that to anyone. People yeah. don't have to write because they're trying to do it for a career. They don't have to write because they're trying to write a book or a movie or anything. Write because there's a tremendous inventory of experiences and knowledge that we have in our mind and in our soul. And we don't realize that some of that inventory is old, needs to be thrown away. And some of that inventory is fantastic, but we're not using. Yeah. <laughs> and if we sit down and process that through our writing... We will be amazed and stunned at the resources that we have inside of ourselves to become more of who we are. Ooh, God damn. I got to, I had to push back from the mic on that. I'm not joking, <laughs> dude. That is exactly the stuff I'm like trying to puzzle out. Like just this idea that creativity saved my life this in the last 40 years. Like I could not have had my career. I could not have sustained it. I could not have made it through the divorce, the move, the absence of my dad, none of it without in essence, the ability to make art. That's powerful. <laughs> I want to pick up on one word you said, because it's a powerful word, isn't it? You said creativity. Creativity mm -hmm. sort of saved you. And I really want anyone who's listening to this to really focus on that word. The key to evolution of any organism is adaptation. If an organism cannot adapt, it will perish. Okay. Right. Because it has to be able to make adjustments to its environment, to pathogens, to enemies, all kinds of things. And so the only way that we can adapt psychically, as we do physiologically, is through creativity. And so if you can tap into that as an individual, you will find those resources. You will find that new way 
to define that new way to look, that new perspective that does save you. Not only does it save you, it can propel you. Right. And so I always think of creativity not as this magical talent that some people have and some people don't. I always think of it as the mechanism of adaptation that allows us to continuously evolve. Ah, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. I've been thinking of it as just a mechanism to kind of manifest one's future by being inordinately present. That is a hell of a way to put it. I'm not sure they're mutually exclusive either, right? Um, no, they're not. But yeah. hell, I love that, man. That's a hell of a way to put it. Well, it's just, I just realized that on my best days, you know, you write something and you're like, I don't know what that means. And in my mind, I've done it enough to go parenthesis yet, right? Like, so I can right. be patient with the uncertainty long enough to, as you say, I love this word, to discern what it is telling me, what I am telling me, what the universe is telling me, what God is telling me, whatever, you know? And then that helps me to become who I'm becoming. Whether it's song or writing or painting or whatever it is, Mm -hmm. I think art is the expression that we all have. It's the reason why so many people listen to music and look at films and read books, because we need that in our lives. We may not all be capable of producing it, but it is essential. To me, it's not something that it's, it's an elective. I think of it all as being essential. And if you can create it, all the better, man. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I do want to plus one you on the idea that I'm not suggesting creativity is some gift of fire from some mountain somewhere, right? Like you got to touch it to have it or something. I was talking to a woman who does choreography and ecology. And she's like, when I'm in science mode, you know, or I'm in dance mode, it's the same thing. You know, the creativity, the expression, what's happening inside her mind and her body isn't different because one discipline is right brain and one discipline is left brain. You know, it's creativity. I would totally agree with her on that because to me, what's essential to creativity is what level of curiosity do you have about anything? Because to me, when you're looking to create something, for example, I open up my laptop screen is blank and I want to write something. You go into a music studio, you want to do a song. Somebody looks at a blank canvas, they want to do a painting. They go into a kitchen full of ingredients to create a dish. All of that stuff begins with a question. What? Who? How? All those questions are prompts for how curious you are about resolving that or mm. finding that out or pursuing that. And so I've always said to people, I've had a lot of people say to me, well, how do I get more creative? And I say to them, how do you get more curious about life? That's how you get more creative is you have to up your curiosity quotient to do so. Because the moment you start going through life with curiosity, the perspective begins to open up. It's like the lens of the camera becomes wider and you're no longer narrowly looking at one view. And once you see that happens, then the world of possibility begins to open up for you. So to me, at the core of that is curiosity. The more you open that aperture, the wider your worldview becomes, the more the curiosity increases, really, right? It doesn't go the other way. I think it's unavoidable that it yeah. increases. It, it was one of the reasons why I was, I was very thankful, and I'm always thankful that my mother made my brothers and I travel as we were younger. She sent us to away camps where we were the minorities on purpose. And she did so because she said she wanted us to realize that what she was telling us about being human was universally true. No matter what culture you went to, it was true. No matter what camp she sent us to, Mm -hmm. it was true. No matter what city or suburb we visited, it was true. That there are arbitrary characteristics that people put on life to create 
the stratas, the caste systems that we all have to exist in. But if we could just realize the universal truths of what it meant to be human, we would realize that our value is that of everyone else. And it's just a matter of whether or not we can manifest that in our own life. Going back in chronology, there's a chunk of your life that I, I don't have as much visibility on knowing what you're up to. Like, what was your early career? Did you have a Hollywood minute there? No, no, no. I, I've come close to having a Hollywood minute and, and still pursuing it. I like to have a Hollywood hour. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Couple days. What the heck? A weekend. Yeah, I like to multiply that by 60 at some point. <laughs> but uh, early on in life, I, I grew up being shaped to think that the higher professions to go for for a young black kid was become a doctor or a lawyer. Mm-hmm. My brothers are doctors. My sister's in the medical profession. And I never really wanted to be a doctor or a lawyer. I knew at age eight that I wanted to be a writer. But again, it took me a long time to believe that that was possible. So I pursued life. My education directed me towards medicine. It directed me towards biology. It directed me towards the sciences. But I knew I did not want to go into that as a career. So I turned it into how do I use my knowledge to think more about prevention? How do I use my knowledge to think more about the constructive aspect of living mm. as opposed to the remedial aspect of living, the curative aspect of living. So I ended up becoming a fitness consultant and a neuromuscular therapist. For many years, I did that. At the same time, while I was doing that, I was writing in that vein. Mm-hmm. I was doing a lot of writing about body development or health development or holistic practices and things of that nature. But it wasn't the writing was truly satisfying to me. Because the writing that I really wanted to do was more social political perspective. I had an experience at 15, and it was a profound moment in my life. When I was 15, my brain sort of exploded. The whole world came up to me. It was like Big Bang in my head. I had this idea that I could discover the causes of discrimination, of hate. I could treat it as a pathology, and I could come up with a cure for it. And I thought about all forms of isms were offspring to just two. One was sexism and the other was racism because everyone's of some gender or some sexuality and everyone's of some race or ethnicity. And if I could find a cure for those, the cause for those, I could find the cure, I could end all the other isms. Okay. So I went to the library in pursuit of this great cause. (laughs) I love it. And was going nowhere. I didn't know what the hell I was looking for. Okay. And I always say to people, there's no reason to be stupefied by the fact that the words 15 and fool begin with the same letter. Okay. So I got so frustrated by not knowing what to do that I sat down at a table at the library and I went to do an exercise that my mother used to make me do when she thought I was idle. She used to always say an idle mind is a playground for the devil. Oh yeah. And that was, we had to open up a magazine or a newspaper or a book close my eyes and trace the pages with my finger and land on a word. And whatever word I landed on, I had to start a story with. So there I was in the library, frustrated, didn't know what to do. And before me on the table was something I had never seen before in my entire life. It was a book of quotes. I didn't know such a thing was even existed. I didn't know that somebody had sat down and compiled quotes from many people and put it into one book. That was just fascinating to me. So I decided to do this exercise with that book and I turned the pages with my eyes closed and I traced my finger and I landed on one spot when I opened it 
I saw a quote from Horace Mann, distinguished educator mm-hmm. Horace Mann. He was the founder of Antioch College, same college that Coretta Scott King went to, by the way. And the quote said, be ashamed to die until you've won some victory for humanity. And that was mind blowing to me because what I took from that in the moment was life is so incredible. It is so richly filled with value that if you only live it for a selfish regard, you insulted even being mm-hmm. born. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. you will die with shame if you have not done anything beyond selfish regard. Be ashamed to die unless you want some victory for humanity. And I decided in that moment at age 15 that the victory I would pursue was how to defeat hate in all its many forms, how to defeat hate. And so eventually that's what drove me to become the writer that I am to leave the profession of fitness and, and neuromuscular therapy and everything else. And just say to myself, I'm going to go after the social political commentary essay type style writing. But what I always wanted to be more than anything, Benjamin, more than anything was to be a children's book author. Yeah. <laughs> more than anything. And, and that's because my most favorite book of all time is The Little Prince mm-hmm. by Antoine Zubere. And I read the book at age eight. And after reading it, I told myself, I could clearly hear it in my head. One day I want to write a book that makes a child feel the way I felt reading this book. Mm-hmm. And so from age eight on, that's what I wanted to do most. And I finally got the courage and the time and opportunity to pursue that. And that's what I'm doing now. Dude, so more kismet. Fred Rogers had a framed quote in his office for his entire career that was from The Little Prince. What's essential is invisible to the eye, right? Exactly. It was his North Star. And when I left, as I was leaving Facebook and beginning to build what I hoped would be the foundation of something that I could do for the next, you know, 15 or 20 years or the rest of my life that I could stand for, you know, (laughs) not just stand, but stand for, I named it essential. So I named my company essential industries because I think it's funny the the contrast, you know, like an industry doesn't sound very thoughtful, but essential is, and it's all back to that quote and, and St. Exupery. I still read that book once a year and I have ever since I read it, since I was eight years old to remind me of that one quote, because I live my life trying to manifest that one quote because I think it's germane to me trying to defeat hate. The heart is what truly sees what is humans, not the eye. Yeah. The eye misleads us and the eye finds detail that's superfluous, right? Like to your point, it's just the humanity. True. Because the eye is, is addicted to tribalism. The heart is addicted to humanism. Those are two entirely different objectives. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The eyes are like this line of defense. And there is there some primitive, like, well, that person doesn't look like me, ergo, I must fear it, garbage left over? Yeah, that's exactly what is hardwired into us uh, that ends up being tribalism. And we even do that within groups. We find reasons to distinguish ourselves within groups. For the longest time growing up, I had to deal with being a dark-skinned African-American versus being a light-skinned right. African-American because they would, light-skinned African-Americans were treated better, were treated differently within our community and outside of our community. So we find so many negative and unnecessary reasons to distinguish them because inherent to tribalism is how do I maximize my position to control the resources to enhance my survival? Mm-hmm. That's what's inherent to tribalism. So if I can find other people who I think think like me and look like me, we, together we can group 
and leverage yep. a better opportunity for survival. And eventually that thought comes to those other people who are threatening my opportunity to get resources. So yep. it's okay for me to condemn them and demean them and destroy them. And that's how all this becomes such negative practice. Boy, we're not experiencing that writ large in culture these days. <laughs> Jesus. Unfortunately, it's so cyclical. I've always said yeah. that the most puzzling thing to me about being human and humanity is that we have abundant evidence of the ill consequences of ill conduct. And yet we seem to have nothing in us to stop us from doing it over and over again. Mm. Is it memory? Is it body? You know, the idea of like, we don't have the physical memory of the experiences of the stories that we are told. Are we not telling stories? Well, I, I think more than anything, because self-preservation is the first law of nature, as oftentimes it's said. And self-preservation means how are you surviving? And survival in and of itself is emotionalizing in existence because it speaks to whether or not you feel secure or you feel insecure. And those mm-hmm. are modulators of emotion. And I think the number one dictate and directive in all lives of everyone is insecurity. And it's just a matter of how much of a dictate that is. The less of it you feel, the less likely you are to feel negative towards other individuals. You don't mm-hmm. see them as being a threat. Mm-hmm. The more that you feel, the more likely you are to perceive everyone else as a threat. And so no matter how much evidence we have about the ill consequences of ill conduct, that emotional trigger is always there. And I think that's the one thing we have not addressed in our learning. It's not anything we address in our socializing with one another. And should we ever focus on that, I think we could overcome it. But the preponderance of it, the omnipresence of insecurity as being a dictator, a driving force in the lives of other individuals is so overwhelming that we never get around to looking at that. And there's insecure in terms of resources, to your point. And then there's this sort of literal psychological translation that I, that I was really reading, which is just, well, I don't feel good about myself, both of which are highly problematic for healthy growth and development. Completely. Because when I say insecurity, I mean insecurity in any way you can think of. Yeah. <laughs> insecurity with respect to resources, insecurity whether or not you think you can take care of yourself, insecurity whether or not you can have a relationship with anyone. All of those forms of insecurity fall under the umbrella term for me, but they all still are the primary dictates and drivers of our lives. And that's why we end up repeating things over and over again out of error because mm-hmm. we're driven more by our insecurities than we are by our pursuits from a sense of security, a mm-hmm. sense of self-awareness. Insecurity actually block us from our self-determination, our self-awareness. They deny us the opportunity for introspection and reflection because it's an external focus all the time. Mm-hmm. If you're insecure, everything is externally focused. You need to have an internal focus for introspection and, and reflection. And those are the things that allow us to evolve. So I think it's the reason why we keep having these cyclical patterns over and over again. Unfortunately, in our country, we're experiencing a resurgence of it that I think has a lethality to it that we've never seen before, potential lethality we've never seen before because we have a nation of over 330 million people that have in possession about 310 million guns. Yeah. And there's a recklessness in our culture these days because we no longer value truth. We no longer value facts. And emotion will override rational judgment. And if we keep emotionalizing, we will find out how lethal that can be. Especially if so much of that emotion, to our previous point, 
is driven by insecurity exactly. is formed by sort of I'm being reductive here, but let's just call it a culture of, of anger or violence. Right. And the opposite, which right, I guess, as I say that, I think, well, the opposite of creativity is destruction. What is violence if not destruction? It's like exactly. the opposite force. This goes to my thesis of what I'm trying to work out for this book, which is, well, if songwriting and music saved my life and as a coping mechanism first, and then as a mechanism for divining who I needed to be and keep becoming, that's a privilege that I had that time, those resources, that access, that insight that so many others don't even know they don't have. Right. Just, you know, and what kind of counterforce could that be? I feel like I'm preaching the converted. <laughs> I just suddenly heard myself and then I was like, I think you had him at hello. We're definitely in the same choir here. Uh, <laughs> but I think others need to hear the song. Yeah, so go ahead and sing yeah, it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One of the things I loved about the time we spent together at my office in New York, that lunch or the ice cream that we had, was talking about change versus transformation. Oh, yeah. And I just thought to myself, we as a culture are too casual with the word transformation. So oh, yeah. I just wondered if you could take me back there and help unpack how you think of the difference between those two things. Like we don't need to change our culture or our society or our approach to being better neighbors. We need to transform it. Exactly. That's a point. I'm so happy you brought this up. That's a point that I've been harping about ever since I was in, at 15, 16 years old when I first discerned and made a distinction between those two words. So often what we say, we don't really understand. We don't really understand the full use of definition of the terms we use. So many people can't define the most simplest terms like trust, love, or hope. And growing up, I heard every time there was a negative social thing, you know, a riot or a protest or whenever there was a big movement like feminism, for example, and the caustic reaction to that from the patriarchy of our, our culture. I always have heard people call for change. We need to change. We mm -hmm. need to create change. And I heard that throughout my entire life. And I realized we were never getting that change because this is what change simply means. It's an alteration in perspective more than anything else. What I mean by that? The moon is in the sky every single night, and every single night it changes its rotation, its axis, its position, and orbit. And by so doing, it changes how we perceive it. Sometimes we see it as being a giant pearl in the sky. Sometimes we perceive it as being a thumbnail. No matter what our perception is of it based upon how it has changed its location, it's still the same diameter. It's still made out of the same substance. It's still the moon. Mm -hmm. I can put a can of soda on a table and move it in four or five different locations. And every location I'm moving in, I've changed your perception of it. What side of the can you can actually see and define. But I've not changed the can materially whatsoever. But if a caterpillar cocoons itself and emerges as a butterfly, what it has become is so profoundly altered from what it began as, that it can never again be what it was. Mm. A butterfly can never again be a caterpillar. So when I look at the great social problems that we're always calling change for, the social ills that we're always calling change for, the social revolutions that we're always calling change for, 
change is too small a word for what's necessary to actually create the alteration that makes a difference. We have to think about how in this country, as a nation and as people individually, in terms of our own makeup, our own belief systems, our own character attributes, how do we become so profoundly altered in our perspectives and our beliefs that who we end up being can never again be what we were? Mm-hmm. We have to become an America that is so profoundly altered that it's absolutely impossible to become the America that we have been. And until we start thinking about it on that level, we will never develop the language to pursue the thoughts that create the conduct that allow that society to be formed. Because that is the process. Words beget thoughts, thoughts beget conduct. And so we have to start with the right word. To me, the right word is transformation. If we focus on that, because people say, well, how do we do that? I think the how gets answered if we first have the right focus. Because now we have the idea. It's like people once looked at the sky and said, how do we get to the moon? That how was how we ended up being able to get to the moon. But the idea of getting to the moon was there in the first place. So the idea of transformation has to be there in the first place. But we have to have an understanding that transformation and change are not synonymous terms. They are profoundly different terms. I think you'll recall that the thesis of the film my brother and I made was really just based on this quote that Fred Rogers said to us about deep and simple, right? This idea that the human experience is fairly simple and profoundly deep, but that our contemporary culture tends not to be either of those things. So I'm just interested. I mean, I think you've given us some real evidence of, but I'm interested in from a day-to-day standpoint, how do you endeavor towards depth and simplicity in your own life? The simplicity aspect of it for me is really simple because I am by nature an individual who doesn't require a lot. I seek much out of life, but I don't require much to live. If you can understand the the difference between that. I always look at life as an orange and try to squeeze every drop out of, but I don't need the tree in order to to pursue the drop out of the orange, if I would put it to you one way. So I'm not a person who requires much. I am a person, however, who has an inexhaustible hunger to know more than what I know right now. I am a person who believes that There are different levels of knowledge, the most basic of which is what we learn in schools and institutions. Another level up is what we need uh, as life lessons to survive. And then I think wisdom is being a level above that. And to me, wisdom is the knowledge of others. How do you facilitate better with others is to me what wisdom really applies Mm -hmm. to. And I think the highest form of knowledge that anyone can have is enlightenment. And when I look at the meaning of that word, literally, it means light brought into, Mm. which means that the the greatest gems of knowledge we can have are within us already. And so I think that like any of the pursuit of precious stones, we have to excavate to get that. We have to dig to get that. And I found that the best way of digging is to present yourself with challenges because they make you go into yourself to find out what you have. It reminds me of a quote from a movie, City Slickers, in which Billy Crystal was riding alongside of Jack Lance, and he said to him, Curly, you know, you, you seem to be this guy that's got this confidence. I wish I had that. You're so poised. How do you get it? And he, Jack Lance holds up one finger and says, one thing. And Billy Crystal said, what's the one thing? He said, that's what you got to figure out. Hmm. If you can figure it out, basically you'll learn more about yourself than anything. And it's the challenge. It's the one thing that you can pursue that makes you excavate who you are to find the resources in you 
in order to realize what your value and your assets are. And you can't go into a cave without a light. That's why I say enlightenment is the highest form of knowledge we can have. So that's my ultimate pursuit in life, is how much enlightenment I can introduce to my life that I can be considered an enlightened individual. In The Little Prince, St. Exupery writes that it is only with the heart that one can see rightly. It was Fred's favorite quote. It hung in his Pittsburgh office for decades. And I probably should have guessed, it's Michael's favorite too. It's not the honors and the prizes and the fancy outsides of life which ultimately nourish our souls, Fred said. It's the knowing that we can be trusted, that we never have to fear the truth, and that the bedrock of our very being is good stuff. What's essential about you that's invisible to the eyes? Take 10 seconds. I'll watch the time. Friends and Neighbors is an Essential Industries production in association with Wagner Brothers. Learn more at friendsandneighborshow.com and please help your friends and neighbors discover our show by sharing, liking, commenting, and rating. Really, it makes a difference. Mr. Rogers and Me is available on Apple TV, Amazon Prime, and PBS DVD. Until next time, it's a good feeling to know we're lifelong friends. Friends.